Our reading this morning comes from Romans chapter 8. And we continue on uh, from where we left off. Last time we'll read from verse 12 through to 25. Romans chapter 8, verses 12 to 25. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. This is the word of the Lord, and we ask that you bless our reading of it this morning. Let's pray together as we come to God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you now, Lord, asking that you would open your word, that you would give us understanding, that we would hear not just words on a page written millennia ago, but living words, words that are profitable for our teaching and for our training in righteousness. And so, Lord God, we thank you for your word and ask that you would bless us as we gather before it. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as you'll have seen, no doubt, repeatedly in the news over the past week, uh, the G7 are meeting. It's supposed to really be the G8, but we've sort of culled one member from that for a, a moment in time, and the G7 uh, are meeting. And uh, I, I don't know if you've noticed any of the language around many of the gatherings of world leaders, uh, not just this particular one of the sort of seven wealthiest ones, but of all kind of gatherings, whether it be focusing on economics or the environment or um, some sort of political situation that's going on in the world, what you tend to find, for some reason, I'm not entirely sure why, is an emphasis on sort of apocalyptic-sounding language. It's language that suggests if we don't get things right, right now at this meeting, everything is going to pieces. The whole world is going to end. The whole world, all the oceans are going to dry up and the forests are all burned down and there'll be no money left and we'll run out of food and, and all these kind of things. It, 
terribly apocalyptic language is being used at the moment to, um, to sort of preface these events and to give them meaning. And I think it, it's for a couple of reasons. One, it gives significance to the meetings because, let's face it, who really cares about politicians meeting together? They do it all the time and very little seems to happen as a result of those gatherings. People make great sounding speeches, but actual change doesn't really tend to happen in quite the way that it's uh, portrayed. So it gives a sense of gravity and purpose to what's going on. But it also, I think, is being done to motivate people to action. We are telling you these things are going to happen if we don't go in this direction. So we must all go in this direction. Whether you agree with the politics or the economics or whatever it might be, we've got to do something. Otherwise, we're all finished. Now, interestingly enough, that is a reasonable motivator for people to do things. I was watching a, a talk given by a psychologist, and he was talking about uh, the way that people motivate others. And he was saying there's, generally speaking, whether you think about parenting or uh, in politics or in school or wherever it might be, there tend to be two approaches. There tends to be the one where you lead with a negative and you say, if you don't do this, these terrible things will happen. Or there tends to be, on the other hand, the positive approach. Wouldn't it be better if we did this? Look at what would happen if you went in that direction, said those words, behaved in this way. It ends in a positive. And the person noted that almost universally it is recognized that the positive one is by far the better motivator. Telling someone not to do something is perfectly fine and necessary but you also then need to provide the positive that says why you ought to avoid that course of action because people will tend to do what they think is in their best interest in a positive direction rather than saying, well, you know, I think you're wrong about the negative and I'm going to try it anyway. And Paul, very interestingly, has done both things in the first half of Romans. He's spoken in the opening chapters about the desperate circumstances we're in, the dire situation that all humans are in, regardless of where they're from, uh, with regard to sin. It corrupts and infects and destroys everything. And the more you invest in that lifestyle, however much you think it's going to benefit you, it's actually killing you the whole time. It's not giving you the positive thing that you think it's going to deliver. It gives you nothing and then leaves you desolate at the end without hope. And he's emphasized the negative side of things for a few chapters. And then he's asked the question, what do we do about this situation? If circumstances really are as dire as they seem, what on earth can we do? Because it's been like this from the beginning. We've strived and strived and strived, and it hasn't really brought any significant change. So what do we do? And he introduces Jesus and says, Jesus is ultimately the answer. And we saw that most clearly as he leads up to it in 5, 6, and into chapter 7, where he says, we're still struggling under sin. What on earth are we to do? Thanks be to God, because Jesus came. And he puts things right. We didn't deserve it, but he lifts us up. We didn't deserve it, but he removes our sin. We definitely did deserve punishment, but he takes it, and he sets us free. Isn't this amazing? And now he turns... To that positive dimension, this is the negative. This is what we ought not to do, but we can't do anything about it. Jesus has come. Well, so what? Well, this is what. Go in this way. Here is the positive side. 
Here is the blessing of knowing Jesus. Is this not in your best interest to live this way? And he's speaking, let's remember, to Christians. Christians who have been liberated from sin, who don't need to worry about the punishment for sin, but who still struggle and still sometimes give in to temptation to live in a sinful way. We face that every day. We fail in a dozen small ways every single day. Sometimes we don't even realize. And so Paul has given us the negative and now provides us with the positive. And we touched on that a little in the first 11 verses, and we find it here in in chapter 8, verse 12, uh, laid out most significantly. Paul says, in contrast to the negative that this insults God, that it denies him, that um, that it places us in a position of alienation and enmity with him, he now says that in Christ we are promised glory that outweighs all our present struggles. Now, the church at the time is struggling in two different areas of life. They are struggling with regard to sin, which we can all recognize. Their own struggle with it, the struggles of those around them, and the way that that plays out in the church. And we can recognize that, doesn't it? Even when things are going well in our lives, there are other people in our church who are struggling, and we want them to do well, and we're frustrated when they don't, and we want to encourage them, and, and so on. They're struggling in that way. But they're also struggling as oppression begins to make itself felt in this tiny little group of believers. That in the vast scope of the Roman Empire, the church is a relatively small and insignificant group, and they are being treated very, very badly by all sorts of different groups of people, by the Jews and by the Romans, and it's getting worse and worse and worse. And the question the Christians of Paul's day had is, when is it going to get better? Because This is what we've dreamt of. This is what we've longed for. This is what we've hoped in. And now it's come. Why are things getting worse for us? If the kingdom is really here, shouldn't life be getting better? And in both cases, there is the temptation to just give up. This isn't what I signed up for. This isn't the life you promised me. This isn't the way I thought things ought to be going. So I'm just going to go back to the way it was before. And Paul is striving to deal with that problem. As Christians give over into temptation because it's not getting any better. So what are we going to do? And Paul says we are promised glory that outweighs all present suffering. He begins in verses 12 through to 19. To begin with, he says that we are no longer debtors according to the flesh, but to Christ. We are no longer chained to the desires of the body to do whatever our body, our mind, takes it upon itself to do. And we've thought about that over the last several chapters, that we are no longer in that old pattern of life. We have been liberated from that, and we feel the release from that, that I don't need to fear death and live constantly denying its existence, taking anything I can in this life to put it out of my mind and occupy myself with this thing so I don't need to think about it. I don't need to live constantly chained to sin to always be doing the wrong thing. I am now free to live according to a new standard, a new way of life, and I'm free to actually enjoy that way of life. Whereas before I thought it was a terrible oppression that I had to live under the law, now it's a joy to live under the law of God because I know it pleases God and it lines up with the spirit that he's given me. Uh, to live by in this life. We are no longer debtors to the flesh, but we now live by the Spirit, and so we put to death the deeds of the body because we live. 
And for all who are led by the Spirit of God, Paul says, are sons of God and daughters of God. We're adopted into his family. Paul is adding another layer on another picture here that actually makes the first one, this great liberation from sin, not seem insignificant, but, but he ramps things up another level. It's not just that God has taken away your sin and so you can just get on with living life. You're actually drawn into his family. He takes you into his home. And we thought about that a little over the previous uh, seven and a bit chapters. That we are welcomed into the actual home of one that we once hated and worked against constantly. And we didn't deserve it, but we enjoy a better quality of life there than we ever did outside And we can't believe the blessedness of that new life. We thought it was awful, but it's actually wonderful. We've been welcomed in and adopted. And we thought about how that adoption in the ancient world is not an adoption that can be undone. In the Roman world, you can dispossess, disinherit a biological child. But if you have legally adopted a child from outside of your family in, you are not allowed to disinherit that child ever. There are no circumstances, save their their death, that they will not be your heir in some way, in some level, depending on where they fit in the, um, the, the the, the ranking of your children, as it were. We are never going to be put out of God's family again once we've been welcomed in. And so, by God's Spirit, we don't need to ever worry about falling back under slavery to fear, but we now cry, Abba, Father. Because God will always be our Father, regardless of where we go and how much we struggle. And the Spirit, Paul says, bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Our conscience accuses us when we've done the wrong thing. We are reminded of the blessedness of the good things that we do and the reason that we do them in the first place. We do them for God's glory. The Spirit constantly speaks to us all the time about the stuff that we do and say and think and reminds us of the way that we're to go, that we are now children of God and no longer children of the flesh. And so Paul just ties all of this together in these opening verses and saying, if this speaks of your life, if you are children of God, liberated from sin, risen to new life, then you are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. We've been drawn in and so we're part of that family. Now, we need to recognize that heirs of God doesn't mean the same thing that we might mean when we talk about being heirs of our parents or grandparents. God will never die or retire and then hand on the family business to the next one, next generation. That's not how it works, and we understand that. And I once remember a conversation with someone who said, who cares about being an heir of God because you're never going to inherit? That's not the way inheritance works. But that isn't the way inheritance works here. Paul is under no illusions. He doesn't think that somehow we will become God one day, unlike the Mormons, for example, who believe that one day if you live your life as a good Mormon, you will go off and when you die be the God of another planet somewhere and you will do the the job that, that the God of our world is currently doing. We don't believe that. Paul doesn't teach that. He's saying essentially that we receive immeasurable blessing from God that can only be received by God's children. God doesn't have to retire or or, or die in order for us to, to receive that inheritance. We get it the moment we become children of God and we go on receiving it forever. It never runs out. It never stops. We enjoy the blessedness of that relationship for all eternity. We become heirs of God, Paul says. 
fellow heirs with Christ. Now that's an astonishing statement. Not that we are elevated to the same position as Jesus. Jesus will always be God, the Son. We don't become God. But we receive the same blessings that he receives from his Father, so we receive. An astonishing statement. But, Paul says, this is provided we suffer with Christ in order that we may also be glorified with him. And this draws all that Paul has said in the previous several chapters, it draws it all down and brings it to bear upon the lives of the people that he's speaking to. This is no longer some abstract thing that Paul is talking about, some problem that other people experience and the Roman Christians don't really need to worry about. Paul is bringing on, placing the weight of it on their lives. He's saying, you are suffering right now, and you're going to go on suffering. It's not going to stop. But when we suffer with Jesus for his sake, this is simply a sign that we are also in him and should give you confidence that we will be glorified with him. This is simply a sign of where we are going, the trajectory our lives are on, and where the destination is. It's a sort of destination that we we never really reach. We go on being blessed the more and more and more we go in that way, and it will never end. It will never stop. And so Paul links together the suffering of the Roman believers and says that we are promised a glory that outweighs all of that suffering. In fact, the more you suffer, the more confidence you have you're in Christ, the more blessings you receive from God through that relationship so that you're equipped and made able to stand even in the face of almost impossible suffering. And we know that's exactly where the church go. That's the life the church have to experience. It is unimaginable suffering that faces them after the life of Paul is over and it's run its course. And Paul says in verse 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. Now let's remember, Paul has been traveling around all over the place. He's been dragged out of cities that he's preached in, rejected by the very people that God has sent him to preach to. They have almost stoned him to death on at least one, if not several occasions. They've beaten him with sticks. They've locked him up in jail. They have treated him appallingly. He has been starving and frozen. He's been shipwrecked. He's survived shipwreck and then been bitten by a poisonous snake. And then he isn't even set free. He's kept in chains and taken all the way to Rome, ultimately. Paul knows suffering, and he's going to go on knowing more and more suffering in his life that at the time he writes this, he doesn't even begin to appreciate. But he considers all of that suffering to be lesser in the face of the glory that is to be revealed in us. He says, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. And what he's saying is, All of creation groans under the weight of sin. It pains this world. Look at the the great disasters, the environmental disasters of our world, not as a result of pollution or anything, but just earthquakes and tsunamis and tornadoes and hurricanes and all the famines and blights and plagues that that constantly cause our world to struggle. All of this comes around as a result of sin's presence in the world. It corrupts and damages everything. It it makes things do what what they were not created to do. The weather wasn't made to be like this. Bacteria and viruses and all sorts of things weren't made to do the things they are doing. They were made for another purpose. 
But sin is making them do all these things. We know the struggle, even if you're not a Christian this morning, know the struggle and the pain of sin because you constantly do things you hate doing all the time. You let yourself down, you let others down, and you're aware of this. This is why we constantly make these statements that I am going to do this in the new year. I will live like that. Once the lockdown's finished, this is how I'm going to be. Once I'm through this circumstance, I'm going to live this kind of life. We constantly do that because of sin. We know we ought to be better, but we can't quite figure out how to get there, so we just make it up. All of creation groans under the weight of sin, Paul tells us. But the present sufferings of this time that come around because of sin aren't worth comparing by the glory that's to be revealed within us. And that glory is the salvation of men like, and women like you and I. That's what he's talking about, their salvation, their adoption into Jesus' family. That will bring about a greater glory than all of the pain in the world. If we put them on scales, then the pain of the world is completely outweighed by the glory that's revealed by Christ. It brings about greater blessing, greater joy, greater satisfaction than all of the pain that we might experience in the whole world. Not just in your life, everywhere throughout all time. This is speaking of two completely opposing worldviews, two completely different worlds colliding. They struggle to defeat one another, and in the lives of the believer, this is what it comes down to. Which one is going to win? Are we going to be completely crushed under the weight of sin in the world and suffering that we experience as a result, and so just give up and go back to living the old kind of life? Or will this expectation of glory win out and cause us to go on and do better and love God and serve him and see this world transformed and the glory of God manifest all over the place such that it outweighs the suffering of the world. When these two things collide, there is a question as to which one will ultimately win. And Paul's point is in the life of the believer, there is only one answer. The glory of God will triumph because the glory of God is manifest in your life, not by the effort and the things that you do, by the the goodness of the stuff that you can work up in your life. The glory of God is manifest in your life by the simple fact that you are a Christian in the first place. Jesus has saved you if you've cast yourself upon Christ and asked for the forgiveness of your sins. And in that transformation, the glory of God was made manifest because you were, in Paul's words in the previous chapter, exceedingly sinful, unimaginably sinful. He should have had wanted nothing to do with any of us. And yet, he transforms our lives in such a radical way that we can be adopted into God's presence. Now, to put this into the the context of the Old Testament, where Paul was coming from as, as a Jew, as a Pharisee, to be in God's presence is an incredibly dangerous place to be because God is a holy God. Not just good, not just better than you or I, but truly holy. And that means that to be in the presence of God means if you are unholy, your destruction completely. Because what is unholy cannot exist in the presence of a holy God. It it simply can't survive. God's holiness is such that it just consumes everything around it that is not holy. And so it is for God's children. You are taken from that place of blackness and deadness and are so radically transformed 
that you are able to stand in the presence of a holy God and not be consumed by his presence. That's the most amazing transformation of all time. It's difficult to put any meaningful words around that to express how astonishing that is. The power that must be manifest to make that kind of change. The G7 leaders are meeting at the moment and they're going to talk about all sorts of things. They're going to talk about politics and sanctions and they're going to talk about the environment. And every time they do, I just feel a little bit nervous because all these ideas are put forward about how we're going to transform our environment. And we don't even understand how our environment works. We don't understand how nature all fits together. We have ideas and we have our sort of fingertips around the edge of something that might be descriptive of of what we see and experience in the world, but we don't really understand it all. And so when politicians and scientists say, if we do this, this will solve all our problems, we've got no idea how many problems that solution will go on to then cause, because we don't understand how it works. The power that we would require to transform our world from a polluted place into a perfectly unpolluted place, a place where we don't damage the world because of our power, need, and consumption to this this wonderful, blissful, utopian world that politicians and scientists think we can achieve. The power needed for that is unimaginable. Every car, plane, train, every mode of transport would need to stop overnight. We would need to stop eating our homes. We would need to stop eating most of the food that we consume. And all the clothes that we wear would have to be made in an entirely new way. It would be a complete reordering of the whole created order and society from the top to the very bottom as we know it. Now, depending on how optimistic you are, you might think, well, we can do that if we start now and work really hard. Or if you're perhaps... A little bit more pessimistic, you might think we're never going to achieve that, so let's just not bother trying. (laughs) Or you can take the um, the slightly pessimistic Christian view that I've heard more than one person express that, well, there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth anyway, so who cares? Let's just get on with it. The power required would be unbelievable. The power required to transfer a dead sinner into a living, holy saint dwarfs that by orders of magnitude. That's almost a complete reordering of the created order from the very fabric of its being right up to the highest order of society. And God does this every time someone confesses their sins and takes Jesus to be their Savior and their Lord. God accomplishes that in your life. And so, yes, you can glorify God in the things that you do and say and think, and I urge you to, because... Who doesn't want to glorify God for all he's done for us? But your existence as a Christian testifies to the glory of God. Because you should be a tiny little pile of ash right now in the presence of a holy and a just and a righteous God. And you're not. You stand before him with all of your imperfections and you sing his praises and you confess his glory. And God is overjoyed to receive you into his presence. We're promised a glory that we don't deserve. We're promised a glory, really, that outweighs all our present suffering. We're promised a glory that comes from our present suffering, Paul tells us in verse 20 to 23. Actually, he mentions it in verse 17. We are heirs of God, provided we suffer with him in in order that we also may be glorified with him. And then in 20 to 23, he carries on, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. 
For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit. What Paul is talking about here is not just that God will reveal glory in the world through the created order or through the fact that there's anyone who loves him and wants to serve him, but that glory is tied in our lives to our suffering. Our suffering in some way gives rise to greater glory to God. To understand this, it might be helpful to look at the suffering of Jesus. What did Jesus actually accomplish? He was equipped for the work that he'd come to do. So he, at his baptism, then goes out into the wilderness and suffers as Satan tempts him. And that suffering reinforces his desire to stay faithful to his father, to depend solely on him and his plans and not in his own temporary comfort or some quick and easy route to accomplishing the goals uh, that he has to accomplish. The suffering he endures through his life from that point on as he is opposed and rejected by those he came to save qualifies him, the writer of Hebrews says, to be our high priest who endured all the trials and the temptations we endured and yet prevailed. His suffering on the cross results in our sin being paid for in full and his resurrection confirms that the price that has been paid has been accepted in full. In every way, Jesus' suffering results in something better being worked out by God for his glory because his glory is revealed in the salvation of a sinful people for himself. And that was exclusively what Jesus was doing. Every single day, his eyes opened in the morning and he got out of bed. There's something to notice here. Jesus was sinless. He didn't deserve his suffering in retribution for what he had done. That's how we very often think of our suffering, isn't it? I must have done something wrong, and God is allowing the suffering to come into my life. And sometimes we do suffer because of our sin. We don't get punished for our sin if we've cast ourselves upon Christ, because all the punishment was placed on Christ, on Calvary. But sometimes we face the consequences of stupid things that we do and say and think. And we suffer as a result of what we've done. But that's not what Paul is talking about here. And we shouldn't slip into thinking that we suffer necessarily because we've done some terrible thing. It doesn't work like that. How many good and upright people have endured terrible suffering all while serving the Lord? Most of the missionaries of the, what, 16, 17, 18, and early 1900s endured unspeakable suffering in their roles all over the world. And yet they went out to serve the Lord the, Good, upright, godly people. Our suffering is God working something in and through us that will ultimately result in greater glory being given to God. And we simply can't see how this works in this life more often than not. But we trust that it is. If you want uh, uh, to spend more time exploring this, then read First Peter. First Peter is an epistle that deals thoroughly with the theme of suffering, not with a sort of grim-faced stoicism we've just got to grit our teeth and just battle through, but with a real sense of hope. And Peter ends chapter 5, verse 10, with these words, After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself protect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Suffering, grace, glory. It's exactly the same route that Paul is taking here in Romans 8. It is the path of the Christian life. He is able to cope with suffering because not only is it temporary in comparison to what awaits him, eternal glory. The suffering itself produces an even greater weight of glory in him. Just as refining gold uh, 
and refining it and refining it and refining it produces something more pure, more valuable and of greater worth. And that is what Peter talks about in his epistle. Don't flee from suffering at any cost. Don't abandon the faith just to end your suffering. It's not going to end well for you. Suffering has come for a reason. You're being refined and refined. Every time you endure faithfully and come out the other side, you are a little bit stronger as a Christian. You have had a little bit more of the dross and the straw and the worthless stuff burned out of your life, and you are now better as a consequence. And it's hard for us to hear that when we suffer, and it's hard for us to hear that even after we suffer, because we don't want to think about that kind of thing going on in our life. And yet, this is exactly what Paul was saying. God reveals his power in your life as he sustains you through it more abundantly than if you just lived a life of ease and plenty from the moment you were saved. Look at how God has sustained you, has equipped you. I don't know how many conversations I've had with some of the people in this room, as well as a whole load of other folks in the church who've said, you know, I just don't know how I would have got through the pandemic, the health situation I've just come through, whatever it is, were it not for God and my relationship with him and with the church. My brothers and sisters in Christ have sustained me. That is you testifying to the glory of God in your life, in your suffering. Look at how God has filled your life with ways of coping, with ways of getting you through to tomorrow. Is that not amazing, generous, grace-filled blessing? Of course. Because what God wants is someone who is fit and able to worship Him for all eternity. And none of us are immediately like that. Well, most of us aren't immediately like that in the moment we first believed. We are promised glory that outweighs our suffering. We are promised glory that emerges from our suffering. And in verses 24 and 25, we're promised glory that ends all our present suffering. For in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. He finishes with this statement that we hope for the resurrection of the body, and when that happens, our hope will be vindicated. We can't currently see what we hope for, but we do hope in it and place our confidence in it nonetheless. Hope for a glorious future. Hope for an existence that is free from sin and death and suffering. Hope for a future that is lived in the very presence of God, and when that future we hope for comes, suffering will cease. All there will be is glory. And in that moment when Christ returns and when God gathers together all those who've been redeemed and takes them into his presence, and all suffering and all death and all sin and all corruption ceases, we will understand. And we will recognize that it has been worth it all. It's that picture of looking at the back of the tapestry and seeing just a great mass of threads and knots and just an incomprehensible mess. But when we come round the front and we see the whole picture laid out in all of its brilliance and, and glory, then we understand that it had all been worth it. I have no doubt in my mind that Christ experienced something of that in his own time as he prays in the Garden of Gethsemane, goes through the horrors of the crucifixion, and then emerges out the other side and is able to recognize what he knew was true all along, but sees it now in a complete way as a result of the experience. We don't hope for a slightly better life. Paul isn't clinging to his hope of future glory because it's going to be a bit better than what he has just now. 
It won't be like this life, but just improved, or even a lot improved. It will be orders of magnitude beyond anything we can understand. As the glory of God is revealed in the new heavens and in the new earth and in the new life that we have in him through the revealing of the sons and daughters of God, and in that moment, all of creation sighs with release. The pain, the corruption, all of it is gone. And all that is left is perfection. In Matthew 13, Jesus says that in the end, the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And here in 21, the creation itself will also be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So when verse 19 speaks of the revealing of the sons of God, we now know what will be revealed. The freedom of the glory of the children of God will be glorified with Christ. Our bodies and minds and hearts will be made new so nothing can stop us worshiping God. Nothing will diminish our ability to enjoy Christ for all he is worth forever. I was talking with someone the other day about um, the coming of Christ and how it ends all suffering and all struggle in a moment. And we reflected on the ending of Revelation, a book which is written to suffering Christians specifically with this big question that Paul's addressing here. And Revelation tells those people today and us today that while we suffer for the sake of Christ, there is an end coming. And in the end of the book, John says, when he testifies about these things, that Jesus says, surely I am coming soon. John answers and says, amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Because when that happens, suffering is replaced with glory. And that is why the early church greeted one another with these kind of words. We're struggling, it's hard, we've got no idea what tomorrow comes. Maranatha, come, O Lord. Because when he comes, his glory consumes all our suffering and all there is left is joy and perfection for all eternity. I don't know how uh, you think about your life, about what you receive from God, about your hope for the future. In the end, our hope is not grounded on things being a little bit better. It's not grounded in politicians being able to make sure the world still survives for the next generation, whatever Greta Thunberg may think about the next generation's experience of this world. That is not our hope, although it's right for us to labor to that end. Our hope is in Christ, for in Christ our suffering is giving meaning and purpose. In Christ our suffering is given a fixed point at which it will end, and ultimately in Christ our suffering reveals the glory of God in all of its radiant abundance through imperfect life such as ours in ways that we could never do if we were left to our own devices. So as we face uncertain days with struggling and with suffering, we do so as Christians, not with some fake plastic grin plastered all over our face. We do so recognizing the pain, acknowledging it's difficult, but seeing the glory that is being worked out through it and the glory that will one day end it all when Christ returns. Let's pray together that we would face uncertain days with such confidence as this. Our loving Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for these words. Lord, when we face suffering, we do sometimes hear words like this. We say them to one another, and Lord, we confess. Sometimes we think that it's easy to say these things, but I'm still in pain. 
I'm still struggling. I still don't know what tomorrow is going to bring, and that makes me feel unsettled and awkward and uncomfortable. Lord God, we ask that you would give these words true meaning in our lives today, that we would value the glory of God greater than our present sufferings. And so, Lord, we would have our eyes firmly fixed on that being our end and not simply comfort in this life. For you promise us, Lord, all comfort will come to an end at various points in our lives. And in that moment when we are tested, Lord, we would hope in your glory to see us through. When all else fails, when all else abandons us, you never do. And so, Lord God, we ask that you would have us cast ourselves upon Christ and we would place your glory in him front and center in all that we do, say, and think, so that when we are tested, we will pass the test, and we will carry on as your faithful sons and daughters, adopted by Jesus and given his glory. And we ask it all, Lord, in his name. Amen.